The following pre-recorded program is brought to you by Wrestling with the Inner Man. Welcome to Wrestling with the Inner Man, because the first fight we face each and every day is a fight with our flesh. Do we listen to our selfish, sinful nature or to divine nature guided by the Holy Spirit? Your host, David Savage, is a product of the West Texas desert and energy industry who recently received the biggest promotion of his life, reporting directly to the top boss, God. We hope you're ready to rumble because wrestling with the inner man begins now. Good evening, WWM listeners. My guest story is so sensational. I don't want to waste much time setting it up because he tells it so well himself. Mark Whitaker is an Ivy League PhD and is considered the highest ranking executive of any Fortune 500 company to become a whistleblower in U.S. history. Mark was responsible for uncovering the ADM price-fixing scandal in the early 1990s after wearing a wire for three years for the FBI. His story was inspiration for the major motion picture, The Informant, starring Matt Damon as Mark Whitaker. I don't think we can imagine the variety of ways he must have wrestled with a myriad of issues over a three-year period wearing that wire. So, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome to Wrestling with the Inner Man. Thank you. Thank you, David, for having me. I'm excited about being here. Well, Mark, since your wife, Ginger, is such a central figure to the whole story, indeed your whole life, why why don't you begin by telling our listeners how and where the two of you met? Yeah, Ginger and I met, uh, you know, we're in our 60s now, but it's amazing. We met when she was in seventh grade and I was in eighth grade. We grew up in a small town about uh, 30 minutes north of Cincinnati, a thousand people town, and uh, we met in seventh grade. She was in seventh grade, and I was uh, in eighth grade. We met in the school band, and then went to our high school proms together, and and uh, got married in our early twenties. Man, that's awesome! The true small town story. So, so then you you both go to Ohio State. You get married along the way, and then you go on to get a PhD in biochemistry from Cornell. You're 25 years old with these sterling credentials, and the world is your oyster. So why don't you uh, take it from there? Yeah, I graduated in 83 at Cornell, you know, an Ivy League school, one of the top schools in biochemistry. And it's when the whole biotech industry was exploding, David. I mean, it's when Genetech was starting. I mean, the job opportunities in biochemistry had probably never been higher and never been greater than during that time. Prior to that, it was probably most people with a PhD would be a researcher or go into university and be a professor and things of that sort, but the industry jobs, the demand for biotech in the pharmaceutical and the biotech industry was probably at one of the high one of the highest it's ever been in that early 80s. So, I mean, job offers, I mean, uh, companies were coming to our campus. There were only four PhD students graduating that year in biochemistry, so it's not something where there's dozens or, or hundreds. I mean, it was averaging four or five a year uh, at Cornell and other universities the same. So I remember starting off this remarkable job and, you know, company car and the company moves you. And we bought a home, I mean, literally the first couple of months. And I was 25 years of age awesome. at that point after eight years of uh, eight years of college, you know, at Ohio State and then Cornell. And, and by the time I was 32, by the time I was 27, I was vice president. By the time I was 32, I was divisional president of the 56th largest company in America, the number four executive out of. 30,000 employees. Well, that's incredible success. You know, and I, I'm a 
chemical engineer myself, and so I know a little bit about it. In fact, when you were giving your talk at the uh, at the Toolbox Ministries, I was thinking, man, I I didn't have that success that he had, but <laughs> I know some of the chemistry. So you uh, you try to have children, and you adopt two children, one special needs, and then immediately after you adopt that second child, you have one of your own. Uh, yeah, we tried to have our own children for about about eight years. Uh, in our mar- first eight years of our marriage, to have our own child, and the doctor said we ought to consider. We had about a ten percent chance. Uh, the doctor said so. He said we should consider adopting. We put our name on a list for an infant in India, but it was a four or five year waiting list to get an infant in America. It was a four or five year waiting list. So uh, Ginger had the idea. She said, "Well, look at all these older children who are looking for for homes. You know that are kind of age three to to eight. And so we adopted a five-year-old and a seven-year-old after trying for eight years. And literally within a month, Ginger was pregnant. So in 10 months' time, we went from zero children to three children, a five-year-old, seven-year-old, and a newborn. That's kind of like uh, going through a divorce and remarrying. There's a lot of people that have blended families like that, and it's uh, it's, it's quite uh, an adjustment to try to make all at once when you have an uh, instant family. Yeah, so- we, had a, we, we literally had a... Um, a dog went from a dog. To <laughs> Our company moved us to Germany at the time. We lived in Germany for four years. So literally three months after we adopted these two children, we were moved to Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, we put our daughter in a in a German in a German school. Our son had special needs, so he went to a, a kind of a special class. And then our youngest son was born in Germany. Our biological son was born while we we're in Frankfurt. So not only with these new children, within a couple of months after we had the children, we were in a new country. For four years. Wow. You know, I lived in Frankfurt, Germany as a boy myself. My dad was in the Air Force. or Actually, we lived in Darmstadt, uh, just outside of Frankfurt. But uh, So I have a little commonality there as well. So you're working for Degusa. You're, you know, everything's going great. you got the family. And then you began uh, working some deals with uh, ADM and uh, then the top executive approach. Why don't you tell us that story of uh, how you ended up uh, being quartered away to go to work for ADM and move back to the U.S.? Yeah, I was with Degusa, one of the largest chemical companies in Germany, and they're large in the United States, too, and they wanted to give me experience at their world headquarters before they moved me back uh, to the U.S. I was vice president at that point uh, by the time I I left uh, Degusa and doing some joint ventures and and acquisitions and kind of that part of the business. And I was doing some joint ventures with Archer Daniels Midland with ADM. And I got to know the CEO and the president and the vice chairman quite well. And we were looking at building projects together in Europe and Asia. And, and, and eventually the, the CEO made an offer that, and I, I remember telling him for all this, for like maybe 30 minutes or so that I'm two years in New York with Degusa, four years in Germany. I couldn't imagine uh, leaving the company. I mean, I saw a great future there. I saw, really, they were talking to me coming back to the USA to be president of Degusa USA, which headquarters were in New York, large manufacturing plant in Mobile, Alabama. And I just couldn't, you know, imagine leaving, I told him. And then he said, well, look, I'll give you this salary and, and plus bonuses. And it was like ninefold higher than where I was as a vice president of, of Degusta, and he said, look, I'll give you a corporate jet. You'll be our ranked, four-ranked executive. You'll be divisional president of the biotech division, corporate vice president of the whole company. The CEO, 75, the president, 69. He said, Mark, you're 32. So your future, even the three positions above you, uh, look bright. 
and and I bought the CEO's home my first month, and which was a mansion with an eight car garage and horse riding stables where your kids could ride in an inside arena. I mean, I just and I was so obsessed with success at that time, almost like a success addiction, at least from the way the world defines success: compensation, house, title. And, you know, to be divisional president of the 56th largest company in America, I couldn't imagine not taking it. Well, of and course. so I moved from Germany to Cater, Illinois in October of 1989 at 32 years old. And, and what, did, what did Ginger say about that? Well, uh, when I came home and told her we're moving to Cater, she said, what? I thought we were moving back to New York and you're going to be uh, president of the U.S. operation of Degusa. And I said, well, Ginger, they made a, an offer I couldn't refuse. She said, you didn't do it for the money, did you? <laughs> she was a Christian then. She became a Christian at 30. So she would have been a Christian a couple of years by that point. I was not. I was definitely caught up in the world. And I said, Ginger, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. And, uh, and she was concerned, and she was cautious uh, about it, and uh, and her caution ended up being true the further <laughs> we got into it. But uh, but we made the move, and I was there for almost eight years at the company. Yeah, being starstruck with success, especially you know when it's unexpected and and even meteoric, you know, it sounds like in your case almost like uh, you know a, a pop star, and you know to have that lifestyle, and and that's what I want our audience to understand is like, hey, this guy. He did. He, he he got the brass ring. He was up there, you know, in the sparkling and the glitz. But it then you have these blind spots, right? You know, you did. You, you know, you're just so all about enjoying it and kind of patting yourself on the back, thinking that this was all your own doing and hard work. And uh, but you know, at some point, you get brought into this price fixing scheme. And how hard did you wrestle with that before letting Ginger know about it? I wrestled with it, but when they first, you know, I was there a few years, a couple of years with the company already by the time they brought it up to my attention. And uh, they, you know, they came to me and said, look, Mark, you're part of the family and, and we trust you with, uh, with everything we have. They gave you a, gave me a big bonus, both in uh, financial check and also more stock, uh, in the company, a seven figure bonus and, and uh, before they had this conversation with me, then they said they were going to start because of their age. They were going to start mentoring me and show me how I eventually would take over this uh, international cartel that had been going on for over a decade. And they started sharing that with me. And and um, and I made the comment. I said, well, that's not that's not legal. And they said, well, it's not legal, but everybody does it. The politicians that put the antitrust laws on the books in the 1800s didn't know anything about business. These shouldn't even be laws today. And they said even the government get involved with these types of things when they have price ceilings on milk and, and gas and lean and so on. And they said it's just normal behavior in a commodity business. You have to do it. And I'm thinking, well, these guys in their 70s know a lot more than me in, in my mid-30s because I was a couple of years with the company. Then I would have been about 34 then. And I thought, well, they knew a lot more than me. They're 40 years my senior. And... um and a few months later, I shared it with Ginger, and Ginger did not feel the same. Yeah, I, you know, I I uh, had a international job myself, and when we began doing business in the Middle East or Russia, and we had to use agents, and you know, there's the Foreign Corrupt Trade Practices Act, and you're like, you know, I I'm new, I haven't done this before, I know exactly what you were going through. You're kind of trusting, you know, your advisors, your seniors, and and then, but there's a lot of those ethical things and. People are more than willing to let 
you be the person out there uh, essentially to take the fall. You know, and I was like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think this is legal, but I don't, I'm not a law expert. So, so I want to uh, give you a little bit of slack, you know, and that it's not easy to understand the complexities of that. But then, you know, so you're having this conversation with your wife and she says, uh, that, that doesn't sound uh, legal. And then, and then tell us what happened. When I shared with uh, Ginger, and she said, now, that, is that legal that you're being mentored to do that? And I was involved about seven months by that point. This would have been November 92, and I started being mentored to eventually take over the cartel in April of 92. And and I started sharing with her, because, you know, I've known Ginger, like I said, since she was 13. And I started sharing with her about what we're doing, and, and she asked that very question, you know, about, about legalities. And I said, well, Ginger, everybody's doing it. This is the way you have to do in a commodity business. I said, look, our kids go to private schools. We live in a mansion with an eight, 13,000 square foot house with an eight car garage, uh, horse riding stables with an inside arena, a corporate jet. I said, this is, uh, this is, this is, uh, um, she said, I said, Ginger, if there's a heaven, this is it. <laughs> and I remember her saying, well, I can tell you this is not heaven, and heaven has nothing to do with your house and your cars. And she's driving a 10-year-old Jeep at the time when I'm driving a Ferrari. And I always told her I'd buy her any car she wanted. I had a car garage full of eight cars, Mercedes's and Ferraris. And, and she said, no, that she wanted to be a good steward for 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 God's resources. And I never understood that, you know, why she didn't want a new car and, why she didn't want some of the, the bells and whistles that I was was buying. It just didn't mean anything to her, and I just couldn't understand that at that point. But she was really troubled by it, and she made a comment about her grandma, you know, that when we fix prices at ADM, that affects every consumer in the world. They're one of the largest food additive companies in the world. So when people buy a Noy juice or a Pillsbury or Kraft or a Kellogg's, it's difficult to buy a processed food that doesn't have something from ADM in it. And, and and they're paying higher prices, and she was troubled by – she brought up her grandma and $200 a week, $800 a month on Social Security, and a grocery bill being one of her highest bills, and she's paying inflated prices because of this price-fixing scheme, and she couldn't get her mind off that. And I remember telling me she was going to go pray about it, and we talk about it later. When she said she was going to pray about it, I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> yeah, and so she did go pray about it, and then when she came out, she had yeah, she uh, an ultimatum for you. Let's hear about that. Yes, she did. It was like March, you're turning your God's letter to this decision. She said her CEO was bigger than my CEO. And I said, well, who's your CEO? I said, my CEO is a billionaire, owns 5% of the 56th largest company on the Fortune 500, a $70 billion company with 30,000 employees. And I said, he, he's best friends with President Clinton, talks to him on a regular basis. U.S. presidents pick up the phone when he calls because of the amount that he gives towards campaigns and so on. You know, a billionaire. I said, this company will destroy us. And I never forget her saying her CEO is bigger than my CEO and her CEO is Jesus. Wow. Well, I never forget her saying that. She said, Mark, you're going to turn yourself in. You're going to do it today or I'm doing it for you. I, I just can't imagine. I got to let that sink in for our audience. So your wife tells you... Um, I've come out, I've been praying, you're going to turn yourself into the FBI. And and you were already working with the FBI, right, on an, on another case uh, related to contamination or something. So you kind yeah, of had well, a, I mean, a FBI, conduit there. 
Right. From the time I joined the company, the FBI was there. They were helping with the Chicago border trace, uh, kind of, kind of Chicago board trade uh, fraud case. When I first came in, literally they were involved helping ADM, and then they were helping with the contamination problem. You know, being the biggest, largest company in central Illinois, uh, the FBI spent some time. Anything across state lines uh, is a, it ends up being a federal crime. So they were actually helping ADM with these smaller cases, and here's there's this case that's hundreds of millions of dollars a year, even sometimes a billion dollars a year, fraud that was right under their noses. So the bad news for you was your wife had a had a contact at the FBI, <laughs> so, so she could call. So but you know, I was meeting with them. She knew I was meeting with them on the contamination. She yeah. said, "Hey, you know, you're." You're hiding this, and you're they're helping with this little thing going on, and you got this huge price fixing case that's stealing hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And she said, "We're we're going to take care of this. You're going to do it. You're going to do it today." Wow. And she she and I'd known her since she like I said since she was in junior high, and I knew she meant it. And uh, and we ended up telling the FBI that day the about the price fixing scheme, which became the largest price fixing case in U.S. history. Started by a stay-at-home mom raising three young children. Wow! So, uh, so he he comes over. He, uh, you're kind of. I remember you were saying, "Well, there's a lot of drug dealers. I'm sure you guys got other things." Then Ginger's going, "Oh uh, yeah, give, I, tried give to, the details. I tried to downplay it and say with all the drug dealers and bank robbers and you know in Decatur, Illinois, where ADM's headquartered at. I said you got you know so many things to do. This is not worth talking about and. Boy, uh, Ginger Ginger just did not let uh, that get watered down when she when she heard the truth just a couple hours earlier. The truth came out. So then you get offered this deal. You know, wear a wire or you're arrested immediately. Not not yeah, much of a yeah, deal. That's the choice that you have. <laughs> that's the choices you have when you confess. Even though you're involved seven months and it's been going on for over a decade, well before I even you know what started, well before I even joined the company. But still, there, I'm the only defendant that's confessed at that point, so you either have to cooperate and wear a wire and go after the kingpins who were teaching me how to do it, or uh, or be arrested. That's the choice. So where were you spiritually then, Mark? Oh, I wasn't. Uh, I mean, I went. my parents are Christians, and they forced me to go to, uh, to church. Uh, Ginger was a Christian at that point, and I went to church with her. Uh, my parents were Christian. I can remember telling people at Cornell, I'm, I had professors say, if you're a Christian, you can't be in my class. If you're a Christian, you can't even be a Ph.D. scientist. And some of these were up for Nobel Prizes, uh, these professors. Actually, one in physics won a Nobel Prize when I was there. And I never in eight years of college met one time a Christian uh, professor that was in the sciences, not once in eight years. If they were, they sure didn't share it. They were in the closet. And and I started thinking by the t- after hearing Cornell professors say, if you're a Christian, you can't be a Ph.D. scientist. I started telling all my friends, my parents are Christians because they didn't go to college. They don't know better. Wow. So I was definitely an atheist, uh, grew up with evolution and Big Bang Theory and Darwinism. And and I'm and I just uh, felt like any time it came up about Christianity, my wife included and my parents. I just thought, well, they're not scientists. They don't know better. So, in my mind, that doesn't prepare you very well for this uh, period of intense uh, stress. And so, you're wearing this wire. 
you, I think you're very legitimate in your concerns for your life because this guy is so powerful and he knows the president and, you know, they, they just make people go away when they become a problem. So tell us a little bit about the stress and how that kind of, uh, you know, worked for you for that three year period. And then, you know, even, even when you got to that lowest point where you, uh, you weren't sure you wanted to go on. Yeah, I mean, even the FBI would say, Mark, if these guys catch you, they're going to kill you. You know, they were wiring me up at 6 o'clock every morning. I'd wear a wire all day long. This is three years, dude. This is not Man. just for a just for a couple of weeks, and I lost a tremendous amount of weight. People at work thought I had cancer. I was falling apart. I was blown off the driveway at 3 in the morning with a gas leaf blower during thunderstorms with a suit and tie on. I mean, I was literally having a nervous breakdown, thinking about what they're going to do if they ever catch me wearing a wire. And, and uh, I mean, it was just tremendous pressure, probably the most pressure I've ever had in my entire, in my entire life. And, therefore, not having God in my life and making all those decisions in isolation and not having anybody's shoulders to put it on, I was doing this in isolation, and I was falling apart. I yeah. mean, I just so much wish I had God then. Sure. Uh, how oh, what yeah. difference that would have made. Yeah. So then, uh, you know, you, you finally uh, spring the trap and uh, it kind of all goes down and you're offered this plea deal. And again, you're not a Christian. You're you're afraid because you don't have uh, a belief that you can get another job once this gets out on how you turned your own company in. So you uh, you made a decision on some uh, stock options and that kind of ended up uh, – not going well for you on the plea deal or, you know, the time that you ended up having to uh, spend in jail. And tell us about that and how that was actually your conversion experience. Yeah. I mean, basically because of all my cooperation, they were so appreciative. They gave a six month plea deal, six months in federal prison, basically Martha Stewart sentence. And um, I remember Ginger saying, Mark, I we in front of my lawyer, you know, she just begged me to, to sign it. And I looked at Ginger and I said, Ginger, I would do, I had to wear a wire three years because of her, because of you, I told her. And I said, you didn't have to do this. And, and I said, I'm going to do the opposite you want me to do. And I ripped up that plea agreement and I, and I basically fought, I fired the lawyer, hired new lawyers, fought the case for three years in the courts and ended up getting an eight and a half year sentence instead when I had a six month plea agreement. So now instead of going in at age 38 and coming out at 38, I was going in three years later, uh, just a few months from age 41 and not getting out to age 49. Uh, I mean, it was the worst decision I ever made. I was so depressed, I tried to take my own life. I couldn't imagine doing eight and a half years in federal prison, and I tried to, ki- and I tried to kill myself. And it's amazing, a couple individuals read about that, one from CBMC, a guy named Ian Owls, Christian Businessmen Connection, CBMC, read about me before I went to prison, about all the things we're just sharing with your with your audience. And he reached out and started to introduce me to God and started to introduce me to Jesus. And, and, it, and it gave me a little bit of hope, and I still had that science block. You know, the eight years of college saying right. you can't believe in God and being a scientist. And then shortly after I entered prison, Chuck Colson, who went to prison for the Watergate uh, scandal in the 70s, you know, 20 years earlier. This would have been 1998 when I'm in prison. But 20 years earlier, he was in prison for the Watergate scandal. He was White House counsel for President Nixon, had an office next to uh, President Nixon, uh, went to prison for the Watergate scandal, became a Christian, became life-changing for him, 
the last 40 years of his life from age 40 to 80. And, and he showed up and, and he went to Brown. I went to Cornell. He had a law degree. So he had a lot of that same Ivy league education that you can't believe in God. And it was amazing. Uh, how he started showing me some of the best scientists in the world that believe in God. And the, but the universities never share about it. Like Francis Collins, who discovered the human genome, is a Christian. Albert Einstein wrote an article that only God could create the universe and only God could create man, and the Big Bang Theory is impossible. Things that I never heard at the university. Sir Isaac Newton wrote as much about Jesus as he did about, about science. Never shared at the university. All that was hidden. And he started just article after article and book after book, a book by name Don Byerly, B-I-E-R-L-E, a scientist in Minnesota, a Ph.D. biologist that was that did not believe in God at first. And he exhaustively studied it and researched it because he wanted to prove once and for all that God does not exist. And it proved to him that God did exist. And Jesus is the son of God. And he wrote a book titled Surprised by Faith. He went from an atheist to become a Christian and 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 found out the same thing that I had learned uh, through this process of Chuck Colson sharing that the universities were hiding it, the secular universities. They didn't want creation as part of how humans came about and part of how the university was created. They wanted evolution and Big Bang Theory and Darwinism. And I learned how untrue that was. And I became a Christian by seeing the truth that the best, some of the best scientists in the world are Christians. Well, and I became a Christian that first year when I was in prison by Chuck Colson help educating me and help breaking down that science block. Well, that is fantastic testimony, Mark. And I know that what's even more fantastic is that Ginger and you are still married today. You're blessed. You're working for the Coca-Cola Consolidated and you're doing this tea factor thing. And it's just a complete transformation and a restoration and a redemption story that I wish we had more time to even go through it. But, uh, we're, we're about out of time here today, and I just thank you so much for sharing it with our audience. And, folks, you know, if you get in these situations where you think, you know, you're blinded by, by greed, you know, by success, by pride, you know, because of what you've been taught, uh, look, Jesus is the answer, folks. And this man, you know, is telling you right here firsthand after going through one of the most stressful periods anyone could imagine in their lives, wearing a wire for the FBI for three years. So, God bless you, Mark, and uh, thank you for coming on the program. And I also uh, would just pray that T-Factor becomes remarkably successful as well as we try to bring our faith into the workplace and maybe even get it back into the universities (laughs) uh, as we uh, proceed, you know, coming out of this pandemic. So thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. AM 1070, The Answer, Wrestling with the Inner Man. Thanks for listening to Wrestling with the Inner Man. With David Savage, we believe the winners in this ring. Courageously follow God's word. Love and protect God's woman. Excel at God's work. Batters God's world and his children. For more information, reach out to David at wrestlingwiththeinnerman at gmail.com. That's wrestlingwiththeinnerman at gmail.com. Tune in next time as Wrestling with the Other Man tackles more tough topics to train up a generation of better men.